Hi, this is Quinn Murphy, and this is the start of Two Pastors Talk and Walk. Hey, this is Kate, and this is Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. And that was my daughter. It's summertime. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So what is astonishing you, friend? What is astonishing me? Well, I need to talk about what's astonishing me, which is something good, um, but it comes in the context of something that's unpleasant. So let me... uh, get there by way of talking about the unpleasant thing. And that is, uh, we as a congregation, as a church, uh, like a lot of congregations in this season, are in the midst of a very uh, deep and tense uh, conflict. I mean, that's just what it is. As we return to the building, um, there's a controversy in our midst that we are facing about the mission of the church and for some, and I get it. And before I go further, let me say that, uh, you know, you and I have said, you know, for a long time that two things can be true at the same time, right? You can disagree with someone and still love them. They can, they can be wrong and beloved, right? Uh, So as we return to the building, I understand, as we prepare to return to the building, I understand this pent-up desire and energy to just be together with familiar people, be with people that you haven't seen in a year. However, the church has a mission, and we, we don't get to set aside the mission for our fellowship. and For a reunion. For our reunion, yes. And so um, there's a part of our leadership team that says when we return to the building, it's full steam ahead into the community because God has a work for us to do there. And, and there. and we have a sense of what that work is. And then there's another part of our leadership team that says, no, this is really about um, a time to reunite and um, let's restore the fellowship because people need that. And we are just at a real place of impasse. It's now getting to the place where it's, it's angry. Uh, people's mm-hmm. feelings are hurt. Um, at our next leadership meeting, we're bringing in someone from our Presbytery leadership to help us work through uh, these issues. And Part of what's challenging for me is that I'm not a passive observer, right? I'm mm-hmm. not, um, I'm not. You're uh, not neutral. I am not in any way neutral. Uh, I am one of those people advocating for full steam ahead into the community because we don't set aside the mission and we can fellowship, we can reunite and engage the mission. The question is the priority. The priority has to be the mission. It has to be the community. It has to be this work that Jesus has called us to do. And um, what's astonishing me, go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say, I mean, it's like that question that they posed to us early in the transformation process. Mm-hmm. That's a real, it's really hard that the consultants asked pastors and our leadership teams, who who does your church exist to serve? Does it exist to serve the people who are inside the church or the people who are outside the church? And that question is such a useful tool, but the first thing it does is make people angry yes. because they want to say, well, I don't want to say that it exists to serve people outside the church because the people inside the church matter, but I also don't want to say it exists to serve the people inside the church because I've been hanging around long enough to know that that's not the right answer. And so this idea, and so then the the natural response is, I don't have to choose. It can be both. And the consultants said, yes, it can. But if it's going to be both, you as leaders have to continually center the people outside Mm -hmm. because they're not here yet to advocate for themselves. So what most churches do is they say, oh, we exist for both groups, but they only meet the needs of those who are there to have and present their needs, right? Yeah, so, the way I've put it before our team is that we don't want to take the choices part of our energy and resources for, for ourselves, ourselves and then right. give the community our leftovers. Right. And that often is what happens. It's like, okay, we eat first, and then if there's anything left, we'll give that to the community. And that's not the way of Jesus. Right. And and one of the reasons it's not the way of Jesus is it's not a test or a trap. It's not a, it, it's not a um, punishment. It's that what we learn from Jesus is that giving really authentically is better than yes. receiving. And it's in dying to ourselves that we come alive in Christ. And so you know, the the surprise, the great grand surprise reversal is that when we, we discover that when we as a community have a common vision and a common passion to reach our neighbors with the gospel and love and serve them selflessly, what we discover is counterintuitively the fellowship gets richer and deeper and that out of the overflow of putting God's mission first – there's so much love, so much life, so mm-hmm. much joy, so much belonging. But you know, but it's just that counterintuitiveness that is the gospel, which is when we seek to serve ourselves, we we end up dry and empty. And when we seek to serve others, we we become filled. And that's you know, that's just in line with the upside down kingdom. Well, last week in worship, we read the text where Jesus says, Those who seek to save their life will lose, we'll lose it. it. And mm-hmm. those who will lose their life we'll we'll find it we'll save mm-hmm. it and uh, that is true not only for us as individuals but for the life of the church right for our collective life that yes. we try to save our church we lose, we lose it. it but if we say i'm leveraging everything that we have in this community for the sake of the mission of jesus and that feels like a loss but then what we discover is oh my goodness this is how mm-hmm. we become the church so anyway, that's the hard thing. Well, the conflict is the hard thing. Yeah, that is the hard thing. But here's here's what's astonishing me. Um, you know, I've been doing this work for 20 years, and um, this conflict does not surprise me, mm-hmm. right? This this is not new, and it is not unique to us. Mm-hmm. It's like, Mm-mm. it's not that we are, you know, an unfaithful congregation Mm-mm. and have landed in this place of conflict. Nope. It is because we've been seeking to do the right thing that we're at this place of conflict conflict Mm -hmm. at this place of real 
decision in terms of our faithfulness going forward. And so this this is a sign of we have been moving in the right direction. Yeah, yes. and I think like, sorry to interrupt, but I think one thing that happens, because it's not unique to you, it's really... I think when you're in this conflict in your church, it feels like, oh gosh, we've done something wrong. Absolutely. Like we're being punished or we're the loser church that's doing, and like, and you think, you don't say it, but you think like, oh gosh, I wish I was like, you know, third prez because they just have all the money they need and all the people they need and all the mission they need. And they don't have to like make these hard to, you know, looking from the outside end, like we think like, oh, they don't have to do this because they have been faithful all these years and are enjoying success. I mean, A, you don't know that that's true, but B, any church that is faithful is going to constantly be managing this tension between losing our lives and saving our lives, right? Mm-hmm. So so we think like, oh, it's because we've shrunk or, oh, it's because we were unfaithful. Like we feel a sense of shame yes. about being here. And we think, oh, if we'd been more faithful in the past, we wouldn't be at this point. It's not true. No matter what your current situation looks like, no matter what your history is, if you're faithful, you are in this work of constantly laying down your life and picking up your cross, of constantly saying, denying yourself and trusting Jesus and going after the mission. So I think like that's one thing that would be really helpful for all churches and transformation to know. Like you might have gotten here through a series of unavoidable circumstances and that's normal and that's natural and you don't need to beat yourself up about it. But like, you don't need to be ashamed that this is the tension that you have because if churches don't have that tension, then I think what that means is that there's consensus that they exist for themselves. Mm-hmm. And and if you are going after being a disciple making church, then you are constantly going to have this tension um, if for no other reason, because you're going to be making disciples and then those people are going to come in and they're not yet going to know that we did lay down our lives for the sake of people who are coming behind you. So that's tension is going to be there. It's a sign that you're, you're being faithful, not a sign that you're being unfaithful. And if that tension is absent in your congregation, I don't think you should pat yourself on the back. I think you should get a canary because your coal mine is full of toxic dust. Yeah, I love that place um, where Jesus says, you know, that he's the vine and the father is the vine grower. Mm -hmm. And then he says, um, and I think we read over this quickly, so quickly that we don't get it. Um, Jesus says, and um, every branch that bears fruit, my father prunes. And those who don't bear fruit, my father prunes. So whether you are bearing fruit or not, there's some cutting that's going to happen. There's mm-hmm. something painful that that's going to... Jesus is going to ask us to do something hard. Which is not punishment. It's not punishment. And it's not... It is for the growth. It's for growth. And it's for fruitfulness, right? Yes. Like So it's not Jesus is mad at yes. you and teaching you a lesson. Yes. Like, this is not bad parenting, right? This is the way of the kingdom. And what we learn... And I'm listening to a lot of Pete's Casero stuff on emotionally healthy discipleship. But what we learn is there are treasures in grief and loss. Mm-hmm. And that's something that like, duh, when the cross is at the center of your gospel, it means that we as believers need to learn that grief and loss and suffering are not to be avoided at all costs. And they're not an end of themselves. That something generative and good and and genuinely life-giving can grow out of them, which means we don't have to live our whole lives afraid 
of what might happen to us. And we don't have to live our whole lives trying to control things so that we have no loss and have no grief and have no suffering. We can live free, abandoned to the will of God, knowing that, you know, knowing the secret of contentment that Paul talks about, that I I know how to be content in seasons of plenty and in seasons of want because I have this prize that can't be lost that is the source of all of my joy. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm excited by this conversation. I'm talking too much. So that's the hard thing. The conflict is so hard and painful and real. And it's not like you look at people in your congregation who you love and think like, oh, I don't care that this is hard because X, Y, Z will come from it. Like you're a pastor. So when people in your congregation are hurting. It's hard. It's hard. And it's not, I mean, like, I don't think we ever want to get to the point where we're like, oh, well, I mean, this pain is real and it matters and it's, you know, God doesn't use us even for God's own purposes. So so we're not cavalier right. about and, the suffering. And here's the celebration for me. Here's here's the the place of astonishment. Yeah. Uh, and, there, and there are a couple. Number one is that there are elders, there are other leaders mm-hmm. who are saying, no, we need to go forward. Mm-hmm. I've been, like I said, I've been doing this for 20 years and I've been in other contexts where I felt like the lone voice mm-hmm. <laughs> and no one was hearing me. Mm-hmm. In this particular situation, there are others who are saying the same thing. And that is a joy um, mm-hmm. because this really does feel like um, us. Mm-hmm. Right. We are having a conversation. It's mm-hmm. not me against the congregation. It's there's there's a there's a split in our team. And uh, so we're we're working through it. But I'm I'm grateful. I'm astonished by these other voices who are very clear in terms of the mission. The other thing that astonishes me is that I can I can see real growth in myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I'd been doing this, if I'd been in the situation as someone uh, fresh out of seminary or <laughs> not long out of seminary, and I still have this, but I guess this is just the the spirit growing and maturing me. But, you know, I like being liked and I don't like yeah. conflict. And yeah. there's a part of me, there's a large part of me that just wants it to stop, that wants everybody to be at peace. And years ago, I would have pulled way back yep. for the sake of reducing the level of conflict. Right. And I would have set aside the mission right. for peace. And that's wrong. For and false peace. For false peace. And God has just brought me to a place where I can manage my anxiety yep. about you know their anger. I mean, it's it's hard to move from a place in which people one day they celebrate you and compliment you to criticizing you and uh, in some cases accusing you of harm. And I'm I'm really grateful for the example of Moses who goes to God and says, you know, these people are ready to stone me. And, um, you know, God says to Moses, it's not you, it's me. Chill yeah. out. And I am astonished by God's help. Um in, in sitting in this place of, in, of tension and anxiety because it's not fun and it is uncertain. I mean, mm-hmm. when you're a pastor, you could be asked to leave. You could um, right. 
you know, people who, again, people who one day love you now think that you are their enemy. And that's hard when you love them and your work, your desire, at the end of the day, your heart desire is to see the people of God walk in the will of God and experiencing and experience the flourishing of God. Um, it, it's hard to have that as your heart for them and have them not see it. And have them not experience it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think that's what's so hard because you you come in to pastoring and you you know authentically that you love your job is to love God and love people, right? Like that's that's the job. And I think I mean, I think most of us come in with a pretty um, immature understanding of what loving people means and what loving people means to us is often that they're happy. Um, Mm -hmm. And the reality is um, sometimes loving people means being faithful even when that does not produce happiness, right? And so you know, we're, we're not selling people passes to Carowinds, right? Like that's like, this is not an amusement park life that we're, we're signing up for. And so the reality that like giving, helping people have right expectations and not lying to them, right? Like not patting people on the head and saying like, they're there, this is all God has for you. And this is all you're capable of. So it's fine. Like, that's not, that's not true. And so it's not to say like God hates you or God's mad at you or you're not a believer or question your like none of that is true. And also doing whatever we want is not faithfulness, right? And and you know, I think that we you have total discretion in God's eyes on some things. So like if you want to be a vegetarian, fantastic. You want to dress in all green every day, fantastic. You want to you know, throw out your TV or have your, t- like, that's fine. Like, that's all on It doesn't matter. But God is not indifferent to God's own church. Like, this is the body of Christ, and God has a will for the body of Christ. And if we are thinking it's our, I mean, this is the whole pronoun thing, right? It's right. not our church. It's not our church. It's God's church. Mm-hmm. So the question isn't um, what you want or what leaders want or what church members want or what the neighbors want. The question is, what does God want from this community? And if we're not being faithful to that, like, let's not lie to ourselves and say that's cute. And let's not lie to ourselves and say, like, this is what we can pull off so God is pleased with it. Because God isn't asking us to pull off anything. And I think that's, like, I remember so vividly being in this stage. And I'm so grateful for the journey. And I wouldn't take it again for forever because it's so painful. And I think one of the things I remember is just being so aware of, like, oh, gosh, the, the old way, <laughs> the old community wasn't bad. Um, it wasn't evil. And we could do it. I mean, barely, but we could do it. And so then like facing this truth and kind of really abandoning ourselves and saying that even though we were doing something that wasn't evil and wasn't bad, it also wasn't accomplishing the purpose for which the church exists, which is making disciples. I think one of the, there, there's grief and loss and sort of shame and guilt and all of that, which is not healthy. But, but one thing that's really true is you just think like, oh gosh, I've been a church member for five years, for 10 years, for 20 years, for 50 years. I know how to run a church or maintain a church or participate in a church. I don't know how to make disciples. Mm. Right. And so then you realize like the, the thing that you realize is you don't have control you don't have control. Then you can think about that theologically and go, well, I understand I never had control. Like, I understand that I never had control. I understand 
that I was always reliant on the goodness and the provision of God, but I didn't feel like that. I didn't feel so vulnerable. I didn't feel like there was so much of a gap between what I was giving and and what was being produced, right? So what we are losing in that season, I mean, gosh, I just remember sitting right there in that parking lot just thinking like I've lost the illusion of control. And even though I know it was only illusion, it was so comforting. It was a comfortable illusion. It was illusion. so comforting. It gave me so much false peace. And our congregation, like many, um, were coming out of that illusion uh, as we look at the budget for this year, mm-hmm. as we look at the reality that a good number of people that we know and love are not going to return mm-hmm. post-pandemic. And um, it's scary. It's scary to come out from under that illusion. And so... For, for many of us, the anxiety is causing us to say, okay, let's double down right. in what we used to do. We double down in what right. we know. Not because those people are evil or bad or hate no. their neighbors. Or, it's not that. The, the way I've put it before uh, some of our folks is that, um, and I've said exactly that, you're not bad. You're not evil. But you could be setting aside God's best for what's just simply good. Right. And I think part of it is just people are thinking, I don't want to fail God. Mm. So I know that if we do the things that we've always done, with God's help, I know that we can continue to do them. Right. And and you're afraid. I'm afraid. We're all afraid because we're all aware that we could you know, we could fully surrender and abandon ourselves to this new mission and we can go after the stuff. And then all of a sudden we got to do things we don't know how to do. We got to have resources that we don't have. We got to connect to people that we're not connected with. And we're looking at ourselves in all sober honesty and thinking like, we don't have it in us. Right. And, and right. Of course you don't don't. because we're not meant to do, like we're not building the tower of Babel. God is building the church out of us. So when you look at yourself and say, well, we don't have it theologically you can go like okay but we were never supposed to do things in our own strength but you know we we did a lot of times and so Mm -hmm. now that we were going to say like i'm just going to go for it and there's no guarantee unless the holy spirit shows up it's not going to work and the holy spirit doesn't work for me i'm not the boss of the holy spirit and god doesn't owe me anything so i know it's my job to be faithful and whatever the results of that are are up to god but the results of it might be i look like a fool or a failure or a loser like that's a real possibility and i have to accept that and that's just so deeply uncomfortable because we live in this success oriented culture where you know it's better to do something to do something and succeed at it, even if it's the wrong thing, than to go after the right thing and fail, right? That's what the culture says. It's like, whatever you do, don't embarrass yourself. (laughs) And that is not going to help you really follow Jesus because you got to be a fool for Christ. Like if you want dignity, if you want to be respected by the world, if you want to never be embarrassed or overwhelmed or out of control, like you don't follow Jesus, follow Caesar, because the empire has rules and you know, yes. how, you know, you, you know, know how to operate. You know how yeah. to lever. You know, and so we're being called to this totally new thing. And I think the problem is, for a long time, especially in mainline churches, we have just cut the gospel down to a manageable, executable religious system. And in this season, I just think it's being revealed to us that that ain't it. And God is no longer allowing even the appearance of that to grow. And that's because God loves us, but it's just so uncomfortable. It's 
but painful. But uh, Pastor Barbara, our friend, it's her birthday today. I mean, I just remember sitting in this office with her, and she would just say, <laughs> she, I mean, she's encouraging me and just saying, like, baby, new life is painful. Like, yeah. you, do you know new growth is painful? You're not, no new life is coming into the world if there's not pain. Like, these are the birthing pains. So I think, like, we think, oh, gosh, there's pain. We're doing it wrong. Oh, gosh, there's conflict. We've, we've strayed off the path. But again, if you look at the gospel, you say, okay, Jesus wasn't doing it wrong, but there was a lot of pain and a lot of disappointment. And I couldn't see that 20 years ago. I couldn't either. Yeah. I absolutely couldn't. Like, what I believed was, if I'm good, everyone will love me. And if people stop loving me, it's because I'm not good. Like, I'm doing a bad job. So the way to determine whether I'm doing a good job or a bad job is to take the temperature of the congregation. And, you know, that's not terrible. It's just not the gospel. So anyway, I, I really I, – and I just um, – our friend Lisa Coons said to me, and it's one of those things that at the time I didn't get was so profound, and now I think about it all the time. She's like, and she said, Kate, really good leaders are not the most mature and gifted people on their team, right? Like, so, so this idea, because um, I always felt sort of bad that like there were so many people in our congregation, especially as we started moving to this transition, that God was sending people, and I was like, oh gosh, like you all know more than I know. <laughs> You love more purely than I love. Your your commitment is deeper than mine. You're more mature than I am. And I just felt like had a huge imposter syndrome. And I think the reality is, you know, this is the body of Christ, that it's not the work of the pastor to like pull everybody. You have one particular role. And, and there are going to be lots of people in your community who are better, stronger, faster, more faithful. And that is mm -hmm. something to totally celebrate because I know that the elders at the Grove kept this thing from going off the rails and really rescued me. I can just think of specific instances where I was like, no, we need to do this. And they were like, no, we don't. Like, we're going after that. <laughs> like, you're, I mean, and, and it was because of my false understanding of like needing, needing everyone to, to love me or needing every, you know, not being willing to let people go when they were going. And it was, and it was really the elders who said, no, like, we're not, we, we, we love people. We don't want to cause anyone pain. We're not cavalier about that pain. And also, everyone is welcome here. No one is welcome to change the ministry. Yeah. And that was something that, you know, they taught me. And I know every day that I'm I'm here, this place exists because of the exceeding faithfulness of the leadership team that God put around me and continues to put around me every step of the way. And that's what's so beautiful about Presbyterian polity is, you know, it's not a lone, lone ranger. Yeah, well, I'm definitely not the strongest leader in in our church, on our team. Um, yeah. So grateful for others. So what's astonishing you? Well, <laughs> okay. So, so you know some of the stories. So here's the thing. Last Sunday was the first Sunday that we worshiped in the building in over a year with our community. And um, we decided um, to celebrate Pentecost on that day, June 6th. So Pentecost really was two weeks ago, according to the, the calendar. common calendar. And friends, it's a construct, okay? It's a construct. So we we're just thinking that we wanted, when we returned to the building, we wanted to have that day of celebrating Pentecost so that our focus on that day wasn't coming back to the building. Our focus on that day was 
that it is not the building, but the Holy Spirit that makes us the church, right? So so we decided to celebrate it on that day, which was good, I think. And um, I'm a big believer. I just have these big ideas that in the abstract, I'm like, oh, yeah, that'll work. And this is right. And this is what I need to do. And then in the execution of them, I just think... I mean, my refrain for the past week has been, I am the dumbest dummy who's ever dumbed in the whole history of dumbness, right? Because I, so I really, really, we do art installations at the Grove in worship, which obviously we haven't been doing for the past year and a half because we've not had a sanctuary to worship in. And I really, I really do believe in them because I think that, um, you know, part of the signs of the Holy Spirit being in a community is that it's just generative and it's creative and you're not just, I mean, there's nothing wrong with using things from outside of the body of Christ, but there's a lot of things that are in the community that would be local and unique to the community, right? Because new things are being born, beautiful things are being born, not necessarily out there or, you know, at some executive level or, but like here in, in this space. Um, and so, uh, I really, um, and we've always done big art installations on Pentecost, also because we're trying to help our, grow our understanding and our culture as a community of that 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 this the Holy Spirit is at the center of our life together here, right? And and for too often, like people get Christmas and they get Easter, and I'm glad, but people don't understand. They don't understand the Holy Spirit. They don't understand how the Holy Spirit is a is a, a contemporary. And to your point, Christmas and Easter come with a lot of visuals. Yeah, right. And so it's one way of just sort of elevating to say, like, this is this is the triune God that we worship, and you need to understand, especially because of Presbyterians. You know, ironically, I think sometimes we have the day of Pentecost so that we can check it off the list and then go back as though as though we're on our own now and until Jesus returns, right? Or as if God is only, you know, some other beyond realm or only available, like, but not active and present in our congregations and life-changing, altering, just wild, crazy, and uncontrollable ways. So so, so anyway, we're coming back and we're going to celebrate Pentecost and I really wanted to do an art installation and we have a team of folks that we work with and uh, like I, we, we were talking about different ideas and um, I had seen this um, installation on Pentecost, I mean on Pentrist <laughs> that was actually a window display of a clothing store and I was like, oh gosh, this would be so beautiful for Pentecost and really appropriate and so like let's go for it right and like we're a community we're like we we go for things right and and part of our culture is like things have to be faithful but they don't have to work right so like if you're going after something and the story of what you're going after is faithful and it fails like you don't need to be ashamed of that right like we can we can fail mm -hmm. around here and god can work with that so i really have learned sort of like to collaborate with people but not to have the filter of like oh gosh what if it doesn't work? People will think it's dumb, whatever. So so we're going to do this art installation and it um, requires buying um, like 1,300 paint stirrers and then we are spray painting them colors of like orange and yellow and a few white ones and then affixing them to chicken wire 
and it is I mean what like from floor to ceiling floor floor to ceiling so that's like what 15 16 feet high Mm -hmm. and it anyway and so it's it's big and it needs to be big because visually it needs to make a visual impact all not only all the way through the sanctuary but also on the live stream right like it's big and Pentecost is big so I'm like we can like we've got a team we can do this like this makes sense we'll climb up on the beat it's fine so a I would like to point out every time we do an art installation this is the process. Like we have this idea. I'm really excited about it. We get started on it. I'm really excited about it. Then we start to install it. And I curse the day I was born and think like, this isn't going to work. And then, and then we install it. And mostly like, I'd say 90% of the time I end up being like, this is, this is great. Like, I'm glad we did this. It looks good. It makes a difference. But I always have this stage along the way where I'm like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? And like, this is dumb. And if I just like, pulled the whole church into some kind of lame arts and crafts, like piddly stuff. Like, you know, like, I just think I'm like way out over my skis, right? Like I've just, and, and this time was like literally the worst because we were working for days and we attach all these paint sticks to this chicken wire. And then we're carrying it from the room that we made it in into the sanctuary. And we're just walking down the hall. It's huge and it's heavy. And you just hear this like thump, 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 thump. Because like we're just leaving a trail of these paint sticks as we go, right? So it's like ridiculous. And then we have to like get up on a ladder and hoist it up. And so then even more of them, they're like literally falling on my head. I'm literally being hit on the head with fl- <laughs> with these things that are supposed to be representing like flames of the Holy Spirit. And I mean, they hurt. And also, I just feel like such an idiot because these people are doing this with me. And I'm like, this is so it's not going to work. And it's lame. And it wasn't like it looked so great even before half of it. Like, it's just ridiculous. And then we hang it up on the beam and we can't get it to hang. and We can't get it to hang straight. And then more of them are falling out. And then we that's like in two pieces and we can't figure out how to get the other one attached. And then I look up and I realize that all of the paint sticks are oriented in the wrong direction because it looks as though they're rising up from the earth to to the sky instead of falling down, which like is the text. And so then we have to take it down and the ladder is shaky and I'm terrified that someone is going to get like seriously injured. And I'm always terrified that I'm going to like damage whatever, the carpet or the beam or the seat. Like I just am a mess. And meantime, like, like the clock is ticking, we're getting ready to come back and we've spent all this time and it's not working. And I um, sent you like by Friday afternoon, (laughs) like this thing, first of all, like the biggest piece of it, we couldn't get up at all. And then the smaller piece that was the start of it, like we hung it up and like half of it fell off and it just looked like, I I can't even describe like what it just was. Well, you sent me a picture. It just looked like a pile of sticks. Well, a pile of sticks on the ground and then this like weird, like kind of like a deflated balloon mm-hmm. hanging from the ceiling. Like it just was in, it was just the lamest, dumbest looking thing ever. And it was a huge mess. And I was so, I mean, to your point, like I was so embarrassed and ashamed of it and overwhelmed and thinking like why do I do this like nobody says you have to have a Pentecost art installation like and why only did I do this like I dragged all these other people into it with me and um I just was so overwhelmed plus like I'd spent the whole week freaking painting popsicle sticks and I'm like you know people might have cared more about the pastor working on the sermon than <laughs> this art installation that nobody asked for um so I really 
on Friday afternoon just and I I mean I just was losing it altogether and I finally I was like I just I have to leave like I I just I can't like we have to just let this be and come back tomorrow and see what we can do and um anyway eventually we we took it down we refixed it we reoriented it one of our my our friends Jerron who was in there working on something else and just like minding his own business and I was like Jerron how are you the only man I know who's not mansplained like you're watching this disaster and he's just doing this it's just not saying anything and he's like I am a feminist I do not offer my opinion I know you're capable and I'm like please offer your opinion what like come on he's like well if it were me and I was going to try to hang that up before I pulled it up on the ladder I'd probably turn it over and staple it from both sides so that it was more securely attached. And I was like, that is just the most obviously necessary thing that I didn't understand until this point. And so we turned it over and a bunch of them fell out and then we stapled them all in. I don't know. Eventually. It worked. Because God loves fools and children. <laughs> we installed this thing and it really did. It, it did work. And I think it has a huge visual impact. But I do think, I, I mean, A, I'm just astonished and I also, I mean, I'm right, I think, and maybe this is just where you need to be in ministry, but I feel like I'm just always walking on the edge of this is really faithful or this is really ridiculous. Mm. And it's just so hard to know if what you're doing is really going after something and being bold and creative and free or if you're just being ridiculous, like it's really hard. And I think for a long time, and I think in our culture in general, in our culture in general, and for myself, like as a pastor, I, I felt this pressure that like, whatever you do, don't look stupid. <laughs> like, Just make sure that whatever you do, you don't look like an idiot, right? And, and part of that is, you know, I used to be young, and I've always been female. And so, you know, people always sort of have these issues of what a quote, real pastor is. And so yeah. you're trying to like, not look stupid as, but then I also just realized, you know, part of taking the, the gospel seriously, is saying, this is a place where we, we we're not protecting ourselves. And, and like Jesus is living in this honor shame culture and totally rejecting that dichotomy right like he's not trying to curry favor or make himself be behave in such a way that the culture will perceive as honorable but he's saying it matters what he is and not what he appears to be and i think a lot of times we have this idea that holiness is is respectable and it's mm -hmm. dignified and it's honorable and it's you know authoritative and i don't think that it is. I don't think, I think that our world is so fallen and broken that what is truly holy is often seen as marginal and a waste of time and foolish um, and not respectable. And so when I'm doing these dumb things, <laughs> like, I'm really like, part of it is the product and part of it is wanting to be a community where we're not so worried about looking a certain way that we unconsciously shrink our mission to avoid risk and failure and yes, loss. Yes, that's exactly what I was hearing, is that often the church um, plays it safe because we mm -hmm. don't want to risk looking like a fool. 
um, but in your going after these crazy art installations, um, you just really go for it and really put your all into it. And every time it seems, um, it works out. Even though you go through the stage of, why did I do this? What was I thinking? But right. it, that's a real, that's a word for the church. And that's a word for all of our lives, I think. Just this idea of going after something, even if you look like a fool. I mean, some of the people that really inspire me, whether it's in business or in the entertainment world, they'll tell a story about how they they had this dream, they had this vision, this thing they wanted to do. And they left something respectable. They, they mm-hmm. left a respectable job. I mean, Dave Chappelle talks about wanting to be a comedian at 14. And um, I think his parents wanted him to be a teacher. And um, his dad asked him to define success. And he said, well, if, if I can make as much as a teacher telling jokes, I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. And his dad said, well, if you keep that attitude, you'll you'll be great. It's, it's this idea of, okay, I can do something, and it doesn't have to – I don't have to be a star. It doesn't have to be perfect, but I just want to go after it because I just it's just in me. And so mm-hmm. I'm not going to play it safe. And the church – boy, the church can really use a huge dose of that. Right, because if we are looking for the world to point back at us and say that's a good church, then – then then something's really messed up yeah. because it's not we don't seek our identity and our affirmation from the world we are testifying to otherwise right we are saying this appears to be true but here's what's really true and this appears mm-hmm. to be good but here's what's really and good and that's at the heart of that parable jesus told about the talents right everyone's yep. given talents and uh, there were those who took a risk mm-hmm. and gained more and then there was the one who was afraid and hid. And that was the one who was called a wicked and lazy servant. Well, and I think also like the pearl of great price, right? Like you got to sell everything you have to find this thing that that's buried and, you know, it's in the field and you think it's in the field, but you go buy the field, but you don't really know. Like that's that level of risk. And I think like the only, the last thing that I just want to say about that is um, part of the other way that I think about these art installations is it's important to me, and, and I really think this is right, and I really think this is from the Holy Spirit and not from Kate, but who knows. It's important to me that when people come into this community that they experience a goodness and a beauty that is more than was necessary, right? Like part of the point of doing an art installation on Pentecost is that it's not necessary. And so people walk in and are like, this is just this is more beautiful than it has to be, or this was more, you know, and I, I mean, I want to be careful because it's not like, I I don't want to lead to like a place of a spirit of like slavery or, you know, brick making, like, you know, but, but this idea that we do things that, that are more than the bare minimum, just for the sheer joy of wanting to like surprise and delight people like that is important. And there's a quote that I have, um, that I look at a lot and I don't know where, it, I don't know where it came from. I should Google it, but, um, that, that someone was saying that I think that it was a mother who was saying to a child, like, this is what I want you to know about life or, you know, a, a, a saying to an adult child, like, I love you. This will end, leave something of sweetness and substance in the mouth of the world. Hmm. And I think like for me thinking about the church, that that's kind of what we want to say to the world. Like we love you like that, that 
it's not like we're the good insiders and you're the bad, but like you, we love you. Yeah. That that everything that seems real right now will end and that we have a life that is transcends death and it and in one way it's that we leave something that is not just of substance but also sweet like mm. something that people experience as good even not utilitarian good but just the sheer goodness of of being alive and and we want to give that to the world and not in a transactional way right but just like we have this one life and we want to do something with it that is beautiful even though that isn't going to like buy something or sell something or you know so i i think that that's kind of what's in my head and part of my understanding in wanting people to come to worship and just be to understand that God is not only good, but that God is beautiful mm. and that the beauty of the Lord is different than what the culture narrowly defines as beautiful and for people to experience that and people not only to receive it, but to know that they can be a part of creating it and gifting it and possessing it. So anyway. Wow. The thinking. beauty of God is something I think the church needs to emphasize. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. So anyway, that's all I want to say about that. This week I was astonished by the whole gamut of emotions that were inspired in me by a paint stick. Mm -hmm. And if you too want to know how to uh, hang 1,300 painted wow. uh, paintsters from the ceiling of your church. Don't ask me because <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, what are you thinking about? What am I thinking about? Well, um, I don't know if you've heard the uh, story. And, I, you know, we don't do a lot of pop culture stuff, but this is one that caught my attention. Um, the comedian uh, Monique, the award-winning comedian Monique, uh, made a statement recently. Um, she is in Jackson, Mississippi, doing a series of comedy shows, and um, she was in the airport, and she said she noticed a number of women wearing hair bonnets, okay. and it bothered her and she made a statement saying that um, essentially saying they needed to have more self-respect they needed to see themselves as queens and needed to can you just define what a hair bonnet is for white people who don't know oh, a hair I don't know if I can define a hair bonnet it's it's just okay let's see a scarf that um, a woman puts on her hair, um, namely uh, African-American women or women of African descent, to um, often it's just to protect um, um, the hair. Yeah, it's just a piece of cloth. And so, you know, these women were, she saw these young women especially wearing hair bonnets and it bothered her. She didn't, and, and they were, I think, also wearing like, pajama pants, you know. Right. And so she was um, bothered by it and made a statement. It says, you know, that's, that's you need to have more dignity and self-respect. And uh, so a number of people have um, responded to that. And it, it caught my attention because, um, I mean, I've wrestled with, you know, how I show up in the world mm -hmm. uh, because it, it matters. And 
if you are an ethnic minority in this country, it, it is, um, it, it's something that you think about. And I am not, let me, before I go further, let me say that I am not in the business of evaluating and commenting on um, women's bodies or fashion, especially that of black women. I do think, um, even though her comments were directed toward those young women, I, I, I think there's an issue for all of us, um, people of color and how we show up. Again, you know, I've said that I've wrestled with this for a long time. Coming up in the 80s, you know, I had popular models on TV like, um, um, like, like the Cosby Show. Um, and there's a certain way you, you were expected to show up in the world. Um, you were expected to present yourself. But if you didn't show up in a, I'll say a conservative way um, in, in the world in terms of your appearance, your dress, your style, it wasn't a place of real controversy or judgment because at least it seemed to me that you had this place of acceptance. Like on certain shows, like the, the shows that I watch, Martin. So Martin was, he was the fashion of the day in terms of the black community, but his girlfriend, Gina, was very conservative. You had the Fresh Prince, right? So Will Smith's character is very fashionable, up-to-date for that time, but the character Carlton was very conservative, right? Some would say he dressed like a white kid. Mm -hmm. But that was not a place of judgment. It was, this is the diversity of who we are. Mm -hmm. And I remember coming up in uh, the 80s and, you know, my parents were pretty clear, you know, for me and my sisters, like if you if you go to the bank, you don't want to wear your your athletic jersey and torn jeans. Right. But even that was not. Um, 24 seven. Now, I do understand that there is there's a thing called respectability politics, and I understand that there um, that that we have a sort of trauma response as as people of color in this country um, because we live, move, and have being in an environment that before we say or do anything sees us as less than and so they're a threat or as a threat and so there is a desire uh to want to um minimize that to protect yourself from that um and i get that um, at the end of the day we have to admit that it doesn't work you can be in a suit and be stopped by the police and harmed for no reason other than ethnicity. And it's also true that there is personal style and taste. Um, and so I think it, it is a, it's a complicated issue. I wish Monique had expressed herself in a different way because she came across as, as critical of these young women. And I... One of the things I appreciate about the um, LGBTQ plus community is that when they're having some kind of pride event, there are always people in that community who show up in a way that says, I don't care what you think of me. 
this is who I am. And um, I'm, I'm often um, drawn to, um, and, and I just admire that. Well, I think, I mean, so I didn't know that Monique started that, but I've mm-hmm. been following the controversy about bonnets because it's just showing up in lots of articles that are flooding my social media channels. And I think many people I um, follow, their perspective is, I mean, yes, that they're calling out Monique for saying, for um, supporting respectability politics. Like this idea that people have to dress in a particular way in order to be treated with dignity and honor. And I think um, that the reality is as humans, humans use clothing to send messages, right? Um, and it's just part of our culture and, and, and we just need to accept that, that, that many people, most people have some degree of choice in what they wear. And so they're sending a message. And I think for a long time, what was, um, what was not questioned in human society was you wanted to, through your, through the way you dressed, signal that you were worthy of honor and respect. Mm -hmm. And so if you didn't bother to do that, then you were not worthy of honor and respect, right? And so, you know, you could get all the way to the extreme of saying if someone is dressed in clothing that is less expensive, they are not as worthy of honor and respect as someone who is dressed in clothing that's more expensive, right? Like that's just the capitalist consumer economy that is is the filter through which we see things. And then I think recently there's been a real conscious pushback to say, I mean, you said before, and I think this is true, that dressing in a particular way does not protect black people from white supremacy and brutality. And often when people of color become victims of violence, one of the things that is said about them is, well, if he hadn't been dressed like a, quote, thug, mm-hmm. if she, you know, so so there is this idea that like, yeah, it's not your fault, but you kind of, if you had respected yourself, whatever it is. And I, I mean, and it's very similar to the debate that goes on a lot about, you know, if are, are women asking for it if they wear too short sure. of a skirt or whatever. And, and sort of this idea that I think part of the pushback against dressing in certain ways is people saying, as a human being, my right to exist should be an absolute that I don't have to earn by showing up in a certain way being in the world. Being human deserves respect. Right? And I think, you know, there's a real debate about that going on in America because there are some people who frankly think, no, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. If you choose to go out in this way, if you choose to show up in the world dressed like X, Y, or Z, then I will not respect you because you don't deserve my respect because you haven't respected yourself enough to come in this way or because you are, in my opinion, ascribing to a certain ideology that I don't respect. Therefore, I don't respect you. So I think like that is a, that's part of the culture war that's happening right now in our country. As a Christian, we know for sure that every single person is created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And so a chance to be faithful occurs every time 
we see beyond what a person is wearing to their sacred worth that is um, not, it's not possible to lose it, right? So I think um, we as believers need to come on the, come down strongly, not in a hate-filled way to those who disagree, but to say, to me, it doesn't matter if the person killed by the police was sagging, or it doesn't matter if the woman who was raped was wearing a very short skirt. People are have as their birthright um, the gift of existing safely in the world. And I think we have a chance to witness to that when we don't get caught up in the debate because we don't, even even if it's true that what you wear makes you more or less worthy of respect, we don't respect people because they're worthy of respect. We honor people because this is what our Lord Jesus, who is worthy of all honor and praise, has commanded us to do, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. so this is our chance of saying, like, it doesn't matter who this person is. What matters is who I know Jesus to be. And what I know from the gospel, Matthew 25 particularly, is Jesus shows up in forms of people that we think of as unworthy and undesirable and disrespectful. And Jesus says, those of you who serve those people are really serving me. And those of you who serve the worthy people but overlook the unworthy people, you're overlooking me, right? So that just, you know, so I think like the bonnet thing, I mean, especially as a white woman, I, it is, (laughs) I'm dumb, (laughs) obviously, 1,300 paint stirrers, clearly testify to that. But I'm not dumb enough to ever be tempted to weigh into having an opinion about how a black person should physically show up in this world. Like the dress quote at the Grove is wear clothes, please wear Wear clothes. clothes. Um, And other than that, you know, it just, we, we are welcoming people where they are. And if the Lord has a work to do in someone's heart, then that's the Lord's work to do. And it's our job to give people unconditional positive regard and create a space where they are loved and safe enough to wrestle with Mm -hmm. deep change. Um, Should that be what the Lord is calling them to? So I do think, but it's been really interesting just to watch that from the sidelines and also just be aware of so much of the way that, the kinds of contempts that there are for black bodies get expressed in, well, black women need to have certain kinds of hairstyles um, in order to be, quote, professional. And so a lot of why you need to protect your hair has to do with the fact that, as I understand it, and I mean, I obviously could be very wrong, but is that we're the ones who tell black women that they need to relax their hair or change the texture of their hair in such a way that it has to be protected or else these chemical treatments will be less effective. And if we as a culture were more wise and able to see the inherent beauty of all people created in the like in the great diversity of the image of God then people wouldn't need to wear bonnets to protect their hair because well, we would see it as beautiful just the way it grew out of their heads. And I I'm, I, I, think I struggle with the word bonnet. I mean, if you were to go to Nigeria today and you went to a traditional Nigerian wedding, um, the bride wears this amazing right. headdress 
that and it's just cloth but it takes a long time to to wrap everything and when it's done it is it's amazing um and so i can see a connection to that history and i, I mean i just don't have a problem with bonnets but i i would also want to say to especially young people is that you have you have agency when it comes to how you show up in the world. And you should show up the way you feel led to show up. And I would say, like, we just live in a culture that prizes appearance over everything else. Mm-hmm. And so just mm-hmm. how we talk about this, we, we need to be so clear that there are people who, who live every day hating themselves because yes. their bodies won't look Listen. or their faces don't look or they can't achieve what is mirrored, you know, what is shown to them all the time as baseline acceptability. Yeah. And so I think to be able to say to people both bodies matter mm-hmm. and also if you have a body, then in our community, that body itself, not the spirit inside of it only, but the body itself is worthy of honor and praise and we don't we don't only honor and praise the bodies that look like the bodies that sell us things on TV right that we understand um, that that the human body is a gift from God and that every person is fearfully and marvelously made and you know there are just a lot of people that I mean whatever and I'm an American woman so it's not the same as as people of color or black women but I mean I it's not the same but as an American woman, there's just a certain amount of your mental energy that is constantly consumed with appearance. And and that's just, you know, it's just drilled into you from such an, an early age. And so I think, you know, part of all of the anxiety around transgendered people and how people show up in the world is just because people are starting to question mm. these norms that have always been sort of received as absolute that that the way you look matters so much and you need to handle that and then anything else on top of it is you know and and that we can tell a person's value by their appearance be that weight be that age be that race and being able to see that the physical matters, but not in the way that we've been taught mm-hmm. that it matters is, is just a real work of spiritual transformation. Mm-hmm. And I think this is all, all part of that. Um, but, you know, however a person walks into this space, we should be able to honor them and welcome them as one for whom Jesus died. And, and if somebody walks in dressed in a way to test whether or not we will fully honor them, I'd say fair enough. I mean, fair enough, the church has a terrible reputation. So fair enough, people would come into the space and say, I wonder if they'll accept me if I'm dressed like X, mm-hmm. if I'm dressed like Y. Mm-hmm. Do you really, will you really love me if I don't show up in a way that you approve of? And we should be able to pass that test. Mm. We should be able to pass that test. We should. We should. So, so what are you thinking about? Um, I'm thinking this is a long podcast, so maybe I'll just say... Briefly, um, I think we talked about this a little bit before, but we are um, hosting a vaccine clinic at the Grove in two weeks. And it just, um, it's a really hard thing that for me 
um, it just personally, it feels to me like the decision to get a vaccination is um, the benefit both to the individual and to neighbor and community is is so high um, that even though I know that nothing is without any risk, but it seems very clear to me that this is the faithful thing to do. Um, and also, I know that for lots of really, uh, I mean, it doesn't matter what I think of the, re- but like for lots of people, it's just not clear. It's mm-hmm. just not clear. Um, and so just as a community trying to really, um, you know, we've built trust in our neighborhood and we've built trust in our community. So if people, what I don't want from the, I, I don't want people not to get the good gift that God has for them. Mm. Right. So I believe, and I could be wrong. I'm just a human. I believe the vaccine is a good gift from God. And I believe that it will protect people I love. And so I, I want them to have it because I care about them and I don't want them to get COVID. I don't, you know, um, I really believe that. And at the same time, you know, I also don't want to come at this from some place of superiority, like I know best and people need to fall in line, you know? So just, I'm just thinking about that tension and how to manage that tension. And, you know, it feels very clear to me that to preach, hey, we, one of our core values is that we protect others, even if there's a cost to us, like that's just a core Christian value. Um, But even though I see getting the vaccine as an extension of that core Christian value, another person might not see that particular act as an embodiment of that value. And that has to be okay. Like we get to preach the gospel, but not, but not tell people, you know, do this. And if you don't do this, you're not, um, you're not embodying gospel values. So I think just that tension of wanting to sort of, and we've said to people, Hey, you, you'll be welcome in this community. Even if you don't have the vaccine, like we're not telling people they have to have the vaccine to come back and worship in person. That's not, who we are, we would never do that. Um, but I also really do want to encourage people to get it um, because I think, because I love them and I don't want them to get COVID and I don't want them to end up with huge medical bills and I don't want them to live with the uncertainty of not knowing what's going to happen. And I and I know, you know, people, anyway, so th- that's what I'm thinking about is just how, what path, what shepherding people in that in that decision looks like, what, what shepherding people, um, looks like knowing that, you know, we, we are so improbably blessed to be a multi-ethnic community. And so just people's experiences of, you know, the government and obviously medical, um, breakthroughs are very different depending on what your history is in this country and, and wanting to, have a real place of humility about, I don't know what it would feel like if in my history, you know, I knew that people in my family were denied treatment or experimented on or betrayed by, you know, people who had sworn the Hippocratic oath. And so, um, just wanting to have a real posture of, of humility and also advocate in ways that are respectful and honoring, but real, um, any pushback from the church? 
No, not about having their. I mean, I, I think it's just interesting because I guess I see other churches, um, other mainline churches, really um, sort of talking about the vaccine and in, in real us and them language and like really casting it as a, you know, if you don't get this, you're selfish. Like just really um, labeling and kind of shaming. And I and I'm I just think that's not faithful, and I'm not willing to do that. And, and so trying to, you know, but I also really want to, you know, if people have questions, I want, it's just a, it's just a sort of a tender, a tender place. Um, I mean, just like everything else, we, we have to be people who can, who can um, cast vision for the good without shaming and blaming and labeling those sure. who don't have that vision mm-hmm. yet. And to understand that, like, if we know something that is true, or if we are capable of some act of righteousness it's not by our own virtue Mm -hmm. it's due to the the unfathomable grace of god who's saved a wretch like me right so anyway so that is what i'm thinking about Um, so we'll see and i was saying to them like i just don't know i don't know how many people from our neighborhood and from our community will Mm -hmm. come and be a part of this but uh, i i hope that it would make a difference um but we'll see wow (laughs) well i mean it sounds like you guys are continuing your work of doing good in the community. One of the things that I love about the Grove is this sense of we are here for the benefit of this neighborhood. And, you know, one of the things that comes to my mind is um, when there was um, a mosque shooting, I believe it was in Michigan, and you guys put up a sign that said, we love our Muslim neighbors. I mean, I think that kind of thing communicates um, you can trust us to your community so that when you do something like become a site for the vaccine, if there are people who are wrestling with trust issues, they very well may say, well, if those people, I know the kind of people they are, if they're doing it, then it may be okay to take the vaccine. And I, I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And I think like we only have so much trust. So we just have to be really good stewards of that. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's one reason like we've learned to be more discerning about who we partner with in ministry because anything that happens on our campus in the minds of people who are not part of our community, it's us. It's you. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. if, you know, like an example, and I know we're going long, but an example is for a long time we've been a, we were a polling site here. Um, but, but what people experienced when they came on our campus, um, the poll workers were really rude, like yeah. just really rude and disrespectful to our neighbors who came onto our campus to vote. I mean, really rude. And, and eventually we had to say, like, look, you can't – we can't be a polling site anymore because we can't have people coming on our campus and being yelled at and being shamed and being belittled. Even though what you're doing is great and we believe in what you're doing, like, the way people are treated here matters. And, um, and, and you know, we, we build up trust in the community and then if somebody comes in – our building to vote and says, can I use the restroom? And they say, no, there's no public restrooms here. I mean, you know, like that, that, that 
breaks our trust. You know, that's, that's right, right. so, so, um, having this is a, you know, it's a, it's a real investment and in saying like, I, I believe in this so strongly in terms of protecting our neighborhood from all of the primary and secondary risks of COVID that it's worth sinking some of our reserves of trust into to see if that will make a difference. So anyway, that's that's it. So what are you preaching about, friend? What am I preaching? Well, um, so two weeks ago, uh, well, <laughs> I had an elder call me uh, yesterday, and um, she said, okay, I hear you. Mm-hmm. I hear you. Two weeks ago, uh, we were the older brother refusing to go into the party to celebrate the younger brother's return. Uh, and then she said, and um, yesterday, we were Lot's wife, mm-hmm. looking back and turning into a pillar of salt. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, I'm, I'm curious about what, what, you know, what, what is this Sunday going to be? And I think this Sunday is we are, um, we're Jonah. Uh, Jonah was a bona fide prophet, mm-hmm. beloved and called of God, like mm-hmm. he was, he was a true blue prophet. Even though we, you know, we when we think of Jonah, we think of the whole well story and all that. But Jonah was a prophet of the living God, and yet he had this issue of not wanting to see God's grace well, given to the Ninevites. I think that Jonah is such an American Christian. Oh, I wow. mean, he obviously is not an American or a Christian, but I mean, I think that his orientation towards God and faith and life are so prevalent in contemporary American churches in that he loved God, he loved God's people, he hated God's enemies, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and he felt as, he felt like hating God's enemies was as much an act of faithfulness as loving God's people. And he had to wrestle with and be wrestled down by the grace of God. Right. And this revelation that God doesn't have enemies. Yeah. You do, but God doesn't have enemies. And I think that's such an important thing. And I think that's so important to set it is because I think we learned whatever. If, If you learn about Jonah, you often learn about him as a child or, you know, the guy in the fish and the whale, blah, blah. And we, we teach it as though like Jonah was like this dud, second class like dummy prophet who didn't understand anything about god and that's so unhelpful because the way you started was the way we should start which is jonah was anointed like jonah was was gifted jonah was one of the spiritual elite but he was not mature like he Mm. did not understand this essential truth about god and i think we um another thing that lisa coons taught me is like just because someone is anointed does not mean they're mature. It doesn't even necessarily mean they're wise. Like God can make a donkey talk, right? And so I, we often think like, well, this person is clearly anointed, so everything they think and believe about God and everything they do in their lifestyle must be mine to emulate. And that's just not true. And Jonah is such an excellent example about that, that he was absolutely one who was used by God, one who loved God, one who was loved by God. And he was wrong in a really fundamental way. And God used him not in spite of that wrongness, but through that white wrongness. Well, and helped him to see himself, right? There, there's there, God's grace is working on the Ninevites and Jonah at the same time. Because right, Jonah was sure 
that the Ninevites needed salvation, although he did not want them to be mm-hmm. saved. But he had no idea that he needed salvation. And I mean, whatever, the book ends with a question, right? So who knows whether Jonah was willing to deconstruct well, the faith and move into... It's similar to the parable of the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. We're not told whether or not the older brother went in. So it leaves it in... Um, it, leave, it's, it stays in our lap and says, okay, what are you, you going to do with this? Yeah, and I, but I do think it's like a fundamental question for followers of Jesus, for Christians, is will you rejoice in the salvation of your enemies or will you curse God, right? Like what, um, what, what do you want? Because a and lot will, of people... Will you run from the mission? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, well, we're almost out of time, so I will say, even though you didn't ask, that this Sunday... I just want to say that Yolanda's on his phone right now, and I'm insulted. Oh, well, sorry. He got a text, friends. Um, I hope that was Jesus texting you. Now he's responding to the text. Okay, fine. Fine. This Sunday, no one cares, but I am preaching. preaching? I want to know. I want to know. No one cares. Uh, This Sunday, we're starting a new sermon series on first loves, and you actually talked to me about it for over an hour when we were walking. Um, but I'm going to be fantastic. I don't mean that remains to be seen, but, um, the idea is we don't, we don't want to go back to church. We want to come back to Jesus. And I I think the first text I'm going to start with is the, whichever one of the churches in revelation that Jesus says, Hey, you've lost, you've lost your first love. Mm -hmm. And just talking about how we can, how easy it is to love the church instead of Jesus. (laughs) Um, and how easy it is to, you know, have, a commitment to Jesus and then to have that, have that love cool and how a lot of times we end up then operating out of duty or guilt or shame or outrage, anger, whatever. And, and that our, our operating system is love. And, and so if, if we're not walking in love, we, we need to turn around and go back and recover it. So that is what it will be this Sunday. And thank you all for listening to us. We talked a long time because that's what we do. We're pastors who talk and take a walk. <laughs> if you want to find out more about uh, the community Derida Presbyterian Church, D-E-R-I-T-A, DeridaPres.org, and you can worship with them on YouTube at 10? On, oh, no, anytime on Sundays. That's yeah, right. he posted at like 6 a.m. when he finishes putting it together. And then you can listen to Yolando's back catalog of preaching, which is really worth it, um, on the Derida Church podcast, which is on the Podbean website. I know I'm getting it. it. It only took 200 episodes. And if you want to find out more about what the Lord is doing at The Grove, you can go to thegrovecharlotte.org. You can worship with us in person at our in our facility if wow. you'll wear a mask over your nose and your mouth. You can worship with us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Um, or you can uh, worship with us through the live stream on Facebook. And you don't have to wear a mask. Masks are optional there. Um, and if you want to listen to old messages from The Grove, they are at our podcast, which is The Grove Church Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, thanks for listening. And we will talk to you next week. Bye.